0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Craig Norman, and we're here today for the Contact Lens Museum podcast series. Along with me is Pat Caroline, and our guest today, which is Dr. Roy Wesley. Patrick, how are you doing?
1: Uh, Doing great here, Craig.
0: Ah, That's excellent. Excellent. And Dr. Roy Wesley, Roy, how are you? I'm doing fine and COVID-free. Oh, excellent. (laughs) You know that this recording is taking place during the time of COVID. So uh, that is really quite important. And um, Roy, you're here today because uh, you have such an interesting story to tell uh, about your dad and your family and relating to us a little bit of the background history of what is arguably one of the um, most important names in the last 50 years of contact lenses here in the United States. And uh, we'd like to start, if we could, can you just tell us a little bit about the family history, uh, you know, maybe from a personal perspective before we get into the professional perspective?
2: Okay, sure. Well, first, I'd like to say thank you to you, Craig, and to Pat, for creating the Contact Lens Museum, which I think is going to be an invaluable contribution both to the field of optometry and the world of vision and understanding what's preceded all of the devices that we have and will have into the future. But you don't have a future unless you have a past. And so by creating the museum, you've done an enormous service for uh, all mankind. Um, So, My dad, Newton Wesley, was born October 1st in 1917, so over 100 years ago. And it's an amazing time period because when he was born, there were no contact lenses that were used uh, for the general public. If anybody knew about a contact lens and they weren't even called that, then they were these either large glass or plastic shells at that time. Well, there were no plastic ones at that point, but that didn't come until the 30s. But the, the shells that were made were used for disfigured eyes, for eyes that had medical problems and needed protection from the environment. Um, and you have to go back in time when people were blowing, blowing glass modules um, by hand to create these things. Perhaps the height of it in terms of usage was during the French Revolution when people would use them cosmetically to disguise themselves during these uh, grand balls that might be held for the royalty. And uh, they created an effect, sort of like what we would be using contact lenses for today in Halloween costumes, for example, Uh, colored lenses or things that have cat's eyes or something like that. Well, they didn't have those dramatic features at that point, but they certainly tried to use them to disguise themselves for events such as uh, Mardi Gras,
3: for example. Mm-hmm.
2: Um. So, when Dad was born, he was born in a Westport, Oregon lumber camp at the time to a family of Japanese immigrants. His father came from uh, a small city in uh, southern Japan. Um. In the town of Gobo City, which is in Wakayama Prefecture. And he immigrated to the United States um, just at the turn of the century, came over and like many Asians at that time, either worked on the railroads, the salmon fisheries, or farming. And he did all three of those things. But he established his family in Westport and then owned farms, and then moved on to Portland, where he raised the family later. Um, Dad was a a precocious kid who was apparently very smart and learned things very quickly. He had a difficult adjustment coming from the wild hinterlands of of the lumber camp, and then to a farm, and then being confined in the city. Um, But he learned to read very early. And one of his favorite pursuits was going to the library and reading books. Um, He was such an avid reader that when he was in school, uh, the teachers advanced him uh, two or three grades so that by the time he finished high school, he was only 16 years old. And uh, he felt that he needed to have some time to mature because he was always smaller than everybody else. And didn't quite fit in socially. So he knew that he needed to work and decide what he wanted to do uh, for the rest of his life. And so he worked at a salmon fishery in Alaska following sort of his father's footsteps at that point um, for two years and saved enough money and wanted to go to college. And he didn't know where he wanted to go or what he wanted to do. And one day he just sat down with the Yellow Pages in Portland, which was at that time not a very thick book. It was just maybe a quarter of an inch uh, thick and started Mm -hmm. at the A's and went to the end. And when he got to O, he saw the word optometry. And for some reason, that really resonated with him. And that might have come from the earlier experience he had um, when he was uh, in grammar school. And the teacher noticed that he was not seeing the blackboard well and was falling behind in some things. So uh, she suggested to the family that his eyes be checked and sure enough, he needed glasses. He was developing, becoming a proper myope like many Asian children are. um, And um, got a pair of glasses and was fitted and could see. And the only hindrance for him at that point was that he loved sports, and uh, the glasses would constantly break because he was doing these contact sports, either in basketball or uh, baseball. But
0: um, And what, what age was he at
3: this
2: time? Uh, at that point, he was nine years old. OK. Uh, and um, he, he went on, uh, because of that interest in optometry, uh, After finishing two years of hard labor, uh, both in the salmon uh, cannery and then Westport, Oregon, he went back to the lumber camp where his uncle was able to get him a job. And he realized that that life of all of the other people there, of uh, drinking, going out to, to the bowling alley or whatever recreational things they had, was not for him. He had other things in mind that he wanted to do, but he really wasn't quite sure what. Um, And so by finding this word optometry that intrigued him, he also saw that there was a school of optometry right there in Portland, uh, the North Pacific College of Optometry. And so he wrote to the dean, uh, the president, uh, Harry Lee Fording, at that time, and uh, applied for admission, had an interview. And Harry Lee Fording was so impressed with him that he accepted him. And he had enough money saved that he could afford the tuition. So that was not a problem at that time. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Well, he began his studies there. um, And again, he was an excellent student. So good, in fact, that by the beginning of his second year, uh, Harry Lee Fording asked him to teach a couple courses, which he really didn't want to do, but he kind of got forced into it. And he taught courses at the college. And then Toward the end of his, uh, when he got got to the graduation point in 1939, um, Harry Lee Fording offered him to take the school over for free. Harry Lee Fording wanted to retire at that point and uh, thought that Newton was such a good student that he would be capable of continuing the school. Um, Well, my dad decided that. He couldn't do that because he really wanted to practice. That was his main aim. And by being put into an academic situation, that was not exactly what he really wanted to do. So he got a couple of his friends. uh, One was Roy Clunas at the time, uh, for whom my first name comes from, um, to help him. uh, And he also didn't think it was right that he should take the school over for free. He said, we have to give you some money. And of course, this is during the Depression, so 1939, um, and um, they had to raise. They had to go to a bank to get a loan to be able to raise the funds. And he thought maybe five thousand dollars would be a, a, a potential amount of money to give uh, to Harry Lee Fording. And they were able to get the loan, uh, and they did buy the school from Harry Lee Fording. Um, and then they enrolled uh, Clary Carpenter to help um, with the administration. So that was the beginning of their involvement with North Pacific College of Optometry, which as you know, became uh, the uh, Pacific University College of Optometry. Mm -hmm. And at that time, um, it was during, well, the, the war hadn't started yet, but this is like 1940, 1941, and they had begun uh, accepting students. They were uh, planning the, the curriculum. Um, Dad had his practice uh, in Portland and being of uh, Japanese American origin, he uh, chose not to, to locate his practice in the Japan town of the time, but just west of it, uh, more toward the, uh, the white area of that time, because he was always influenced by his father, who said that every the, the, every member of the family should be totally Americanized and as American as possible. So he didn't want to be stuck in a J- Japanese-only culture and society. Um, so he began his practice, was teaching at the College of Optometry, and things were going fine up until December seventh, 1941, when sure. Pearl Harbor occurred. And mm-hmm. uh, everything had to be shut down. They suspended operations for the college. They um, He had to sell his practice, um, and they lost a lot of their uh, holdings. His father had five hotels in Portland at the time. Um, only one survived because a friend of theirs, Mrs. Cora Oliver, um, took over the management of the hotel and would send money to dad to help out with his own expenses. Well, he... Um, we were to go into the first uh, detention center uh, to be incarcerated with the other Japanese Americans on May 5th, 1942, which is the day that I happened to be born, which postponed my mom and me from going into that detention center at the uh, Livestock Exposition Fair uh, in Portland uh, for three days while we recovered, she recovered at the hospital And then was uh, sent there to that camp to live in a 10 by 10 box that was quickly thrown together out of plywood um, over the horse manure and the animal manure below. Um, And it was springtime. So there was both the stench and the presence of all the flies that were uh, breeding in in the manure. So sanitation was bad. Uh, People got sick. Uh, My brother, who was a year and a half old at that time, got sick enough that he had to be transported to the regular hospital in Portland uh, to be taken care of. So that was a pretty miserable start. But uh, dad tried to make the best of it by uh, taking over, helping the administration of that uh, assembly center. Um, And he was in charge of reporting uh, all the problems that might be coming up. Both to the administration and he would write these so-called letters to uh, to freedom, uh, which he sent to the governor of the state of Oregon. Um, He had a lot of connections in in Portland and in Oregon because he was also the president of the Japanese American uh, Citizens League at that time. And so he was in touch with a lot of people. um, And he even actually helped out during the war effort after Pearl Harbor, because he was not only uh, the president of the JACL, but he was also on the military, the civilian military brigade that was watching out for the bridges and important uh, military sites. Now, that's kind of odd because, you know, here he is a Japanese American and everybody else was put on curfew, but he was allowed to roam free after curfew to be with his um comrades who were, were uh, overseeing the safety of the city. Um, it's almost as if he weren't Japanese American, but right. <laughs> I, oh. and I never understood how he got away with that, but he did. Um, he had so many relationships that he was able to uh, take advantage of the Quaker program, which began trying to get students into the uh, colleges across the country during the war years um, so that they could continue their education. Well, of course, Dad had his uh, OD degree already, but nonetheless, uh, he said that he wanted to get an MD degree after that, and so he would need to take some courses to fulfill that requirement and um, was accepted at Earlham College, which is a Quaker school in Richmond, Indiana. And after filling out all the applications with the help of the Quakers, Um, and getting letters of support from the governor, from the mayor of, of Portland, uh, Riley, uh, he was able to, um, secure a position and he had enough money coming in as income, uh, from operations from the hotel that he could, uh, go on to Richmond, Indiana. Well, he was only with the family in the first detention center in Portland for three months, um, My mom, my brother, and I were there for six months total before being shipped off by train to Minidoka, Idaho, which was in the desert of uh, southeastern Idaho, where Minidoka uh, incarceration camp was was settled and built by the Army. And we were there for another two years. So it was actually two years before I, as a baby, or or my brother, as a, a young toddler, were able to see him again, Um, and so there was no bonding. And so when he finally came back in 1943, Christmas, um, he was a stranger to us. And uh, he, of course, obviously recognized us, but we didn't recognize him. And he knew that we would be released fairly soon. My mom had written a letter to the administration to get an early release before the end of the war, uh, hoping to secure a job uh, in Chicago where we could meet up again and Dad could reestablish the family life. Well, that finally went through in January of 1944. We uh, met together in, in Chicago. Uh, Dad had uh, gotten a job at uh, what became Illinois College of Optometry. It was It was then called Monroe College of Optometry, and uh, it's in the building that near the riverfront uh, in Chicago. And that building is still there, <laughs> interestingly e- enough. And um, I have a picture of him standing in front of uh, the uh, Monroe College of Optometry window on the first floor. And that window, that that design, the building itself is all the same as it was back then in 1944. Pretty amazing.
3: Wow, that's um, incredible. Yeah.
2: Anyway, so dad then had that job. He was also working at Northwestern University in the Department of Ophthalmology as an optometrist, uh, seeing a great deal of pathology that he probably never would have been able to see otherwise. And he began um, thinking about um, developing contact lenses. In the summer, uh, before he got to Richmond, because he, he was released from the Portland Detention Center, Uh, early in the summer and uh, had time before school started in the fall. So he uh, stayed at this home in in Richmond, but then would come up to Chicago because he was having problems with his eyes. When he was about um, a a sophomore in, in his sophomore year at the Pacific College of Optometry, or North Pacific College of Optometry at that time, Uh, he began to see double images in one eye, you know, so and they couldn't explain what was causing that and um, they didn't have a lot of the instrumentation that we have today, so it was kind of a mystery of what was happening and so he went around to doctors of all sorts and he said that he actually saw 50 doctors before he found one who diagnosed him with keratoconus and that was this Dr. Fantle in Chicago so he would come up from Richmond uh, during the summer for examinations, and the doctor had prescribed um, a hard-contact lens, uh, a scleral lens to be molded to the shape of his eye uh, at uh, what became um, an an optical company in Chicago. There was a Mr. Hunter who was the optician there who, who did the molding and the initial fits Uh, based on Dr. Fantel, the MD's recommendation. Well, it was a miracle because at that point, he was seeing about 100 images in each eye. And he was able to um, see clearly once the lens was put on. The problem was he could only wear it for a maximum of an hour to at the most two hours without having Mm -hmm. extraordinary pain. So he... um, then realized there's a solution for his particular problem. And he began thinking, well, if we could just make something that was more comfortable, uh, that was his goal. And so he enrolled a couple of his students, one of whom happened to be George Jessen, um, who was in his last year at Monroe, and Val Kuhn, who was also an optician. Now, George was an optician at uh, uh, one of the uh, optical companies in Chicago. And Val Kuhn was an uh, optician at a different one, Riggs, I think it was called. And the two of them thought it was an interesting idea. They decided they would help them get started in doing the research. And so they would meet in George Jesson's mother's apartment building uh, and do their research work uh, in the basement at night. And they were very inventive. Uh, they used a uh, treadle sewing machine for example to as a lathe to turn uh the plastic rods to cut into uh, contact lenses and that was their start of trying to miniaturize uh something that would be more comfortable to wear uh plastics had just come out back you know in the 30s obviously but um the the techniques for for uh Cutting them was uh, known, and uh, they just kept refining the things they needed to do to make a contact lens. Well, they were successful enough that they thought they could have a, a good business. Uh, Val Kuhn dropped out of their group because he w- had a family and he just felt that he needed to spend more time uh, making a, a better income <laughs> or get, making an income because they were just doing this for free on their own. But he needed to make some money, and so he um, dropped out. But George Jefferson persisted, and he and uh, Newton developed uh, their techniques sufficiently. They felt they could go ahead and start creating um, moving operations downtown to where Dad had his clinic office in uh, a building on 59 East Madison, which was the jeweler's building it was one in the jeweler's row area of chicago downtown chicago
0: so right can you relate relate to us at all what what a contact lens would have looked like for them at this time
2: oh you mean the one that they made originally
0: (laughs) right The, the ones that they they thought they could build the business on Okay.
2: Well, they did. They started out actually with scleral plastic lenses that were molded. And mm-hmm. um, Michael Jessen actually gave me two lenses that they made that he had in his collection, um, and I have I have those two lenses. Um, uh, so that was they just kind of started out from the beginning trying to do what was already established and known, which was molding scleral lenses. <clears throat> and then when they uh, went further, they realized they could get these plastic rods that they would cut, and they thought they could just cut and shape them. Um, so they began to make these crude lenses uh, very crude because they obviously they didn't have control over the radius of curvature for either the inside or the outside. But they tried to get something to look like that just by cutting on uh, their little spindle lathe. Well, that evolved into being able to get uh, machinery. Uh, uh, Dad was always searching for an answer to a particular problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so Roy, mentioned... if I can interject again. So, you, you said that they started with these plastic rods. So, it would just been a long tube of PMMA at this point? Right. It'd be PMMA. They would cut off a particular section into what we know as today of the buttons, A right? Button. They turn them into sure. buttons. And then they would use their lathing process um to insert that button and be able to turn and lathe speak, right? To turn right. Uh, the inside and outside curvature into some kind of powered lens.
2: Correct. Exactly. Um it was very crude, and so they needed they needed better machinery, and they got that in the form of a, a standard Briggs and Stratton lathe, which was, of course, an industrial thing, but it gave them the opportunity to, to uh, fine-tune the radius of curvature for the inside and outside curves uh, using the micrometer settings on, on that kind of a lathe. That sort of tuning was essential for the development of uh, creating a, a, a usable contact lens okay. of course they had to learn about all the optics of what they were trying to do with terms of the radius of curvature and um, the one thing that was kind of missing was the polishing steps and uh, edging and that took a long time to develop but uh, it finally came along um, through a lot of fortuitous things they they, they had some uh, capable engineers that they could count on um, <clears throat> who helped them with uh, ideas and techniques.
0: Mm-hmm. So they formed a company at this point. And the, the name of the company at that time?
2: <clears throat> the company was called the Plastic Contact Lens Company.
0: <laughs> you know, okay, so e- even then, in the original form or format. Yes.
2: No. Yes, that's what it was initially called and incorporated, um, as such in, um, 1946, I believe it was. <clears throat> it's also true that they started a clinic at the same time, uh, Georgia and, uh, and, and uh, Roy,
1: at that time, there were a lot of issues related to patents. Um, how, um, How was your? How did your dad approach those uh, those various patents that were in place?
2: Well, of course, the the major one being uh, Kevin Tui's patent. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, well, those patent issues didn't come up at that point because it was very
0: early. Um, Uh huh. Kevin that and, was more like and, in the 50s
2: at that point. Yes, I think, exactly. That and stuff. Yes. That's when uh, concerns about ownership and rights and royalties uh, came up. But before, you know, I think when you look at the date of Kevin Tui's patent, um, it's just after, well, they were working simultaneously. Let's put it that way. So Kevin and Newton were working simultaneously, uh, it's hard to say who was preceded the other and mm-hmm. uh, whether Kevin's um, serendipitous discovery of either the broken lens that he had to then fix and, and uh, make into something more usable. Uh, if that story and the dating of that story is true, it coincides pretty much with the same time that uh, Newton and George were working together and trying to do what they were doing and making a smaller lens. Um all of this also fits together with that same period of time in Europe when um other people were working developing smaller lenses as well, villizas for example, or um Dalos um
0: and soper uh people so like right do do you think that during that time frame or do you have any knowledge of was there communication between these different entities that were coming up and investigating a corneal ah, lens, like you said, the European question. guys in mm-hmm. Chicago and Los Angeles for TUI and so on.
2: No, there was not at that time. And that that's created a problem both in terms of the historical perspective, um, because I think the United States historical perspective has always been from the East Coast point of view, because the East Coast has been founded earlier the documentation of records and the um, relationship between the Europeans Dallos, uh, Soper, and uh, Finebloom, for example, uh, who created the who used uh, PMMA probably earlier than anybody else. So the Finebloom lenses um, were really an important part of the history, but it's written more ac- more or described more in um, Eastern literature that permeates our contact lens literature. And because there wasn't this communication between the Midwest or the West Coast in contact lenses, um, we're generally ignored. <laughs> Even though time-wise, it all happened simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess, My writing about the history of dad, and I try to be as accurate as I can about the time periods when he was doing things with George. Um, You can't claim anything because the patent literature is what it is. But if you look at a timeline of what people were trying to do when they were doing it, you see all of this uh, simultaneity. Uh, going on. And, um, you know, it's just like the time was ripe on the planet for people to have this uh, same thinking. And it was the same thing with calculus between Newton and Leibniz, you know, coming up with the same system uh, independently, even though one was in Germany and the other was in England uh, and didn't communicate. Um, There was something right about the time that made these things appear And I think that's the situation here that, you know, it's hard to say, oh, this one really deserves total credit for something or the other. Um, But anyway, be that as it may, um, Newton went on to develop the company out of these initial forays. um, And I guess it was just constantly working on one aspect of lens design after another as the problems presented. To make the fitting more comfortable and um, wearable, and the solutions that were needed to to uh, go along with them. Um, the other aspect of Newton's story is really one I think that has to be um, an integral part, almost as important as the development of the lens itself, is the training of doctors, um, because there. The, the field did not exist at that time. There was no training. The schools did not train doctors of optometry in fitting contact lenses. Opticians weren't trained. Ophthalmologists mm-hmm. weren't trained. So here you have a product that was developed you know, out of his own selfish reasons because he needed to see. But he also realized that you had to... Tr- to sell the product and in order to sell it you had to train people to be able to use it and that he was uh um unstoppable in doing that in many ways because he was so convinced that this was going to be a wonderful thing and of course timing was essential because this is after world war ii and the economy was just beginning to ramp up again um Doctors of optometry by the time of the 50s needed something to really uh, capture the public in terms of increasing their practice. And Dad's approach and George's was that they would use movie stars, sports athletes, people who needed to have good appearance in front of the public and convince them to wear contact lenses because they could see for example actors being on stage if you were myopic you could just fall off the stage very easily if you didn't know where you were going and um they they often didn't want to wear glasses only a few famous hollywood people wore glasses at that time uh uh who's a comedian um the guy that used oh charlie not charlie chaplin the guy that was hanging off the clock um
1: Oh, yes. I know who you're talking about. can't think of his name either.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you have only a few people that would wear glasses. And, of course, Dorothy Parker had that famous line, uh, men don't make passes at women who wear glasses. Right. (laughs) So there was this uh, kind of personal um, vanity thing that played into trying to convince the public that that contact lenses might be a a thing that you might want to do because it's contrary to our nature to stick something in your eye. You're taught, you know, growing up as a kid that you have to protect your eyes from things. And we, of course, that's what the whole blink reflex is about is protecting your eyes. You don't go around sticking things in your eyes. (laughs) So all of that had to be trained and taught. And uh, dad's involvement in doing that, you know, starting when I was a little boy and uh, I thought the whole world was only made up of eye doctors because that's all I ever saw. Right. So our weekends would be, you know, uh, I thought, well, our weekend vacation trip was to somewhere in Chicago or to Iowa or to Indiana or Michigan, driving to some doctor's office where he would talk about trying to train them into fitting contact lenses. And of course, he's building his customer base at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> well, all of that led to his giving seminars and talks to bigger and bigger groups and training.
0: Um, so so, Roy, if I could ask, then uh, at the time for the company, was then Jessen's role to work on the manufacturing side?
2: No, dad was in that. Uh, they had clearly defined their roles. George took care of the clinic that was established in Chicago. Okay. Uh, that was on a different floor. And uh, dad took care of the company, the Contact Lens Company. Okay. And okay. they were partners. You know, they had 50-50 interest in both uh, divisions of their, of their efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, actually, they had... So your, the, <laughs>
0: so your dad was trying to get the company off the ground, which is why he was going everywhere with the family to train people. Right. And meanwhile, exactly. the the working and the testing and the products and the clinical work was being done with George.
2: Yeah. Well, they actually both did that. Um, George, being the very personable guy, you know, was really good at uh, recruiting um, patients, like uh, in mm-hmm. the in the sports world. You, know, you got all of the Chicago Bears involved. Mm-hmm. Um, other other people, yeah. Um. So the, the training part evolved into uh, larger and larger groups. Uh, we didn't have continuing education credits at that point. That came in after the National Eye Research Foundation got created in 1955. And, of course, the foundation at the beginning was part of the continuing education units uh, accreditation so that doctors could keep up their skill levels. Um but prior to that, that did not exist. But the foundation did um allow for doctors to get together, uh have meetings in more and more exotic places because doctors by this time began to make enough money that they could travel, bring their families, they could go to Las Vegas, they could go to Hawaii, they began having international meetings.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um and it worked out for everybody because they could take tax tax deductions for their training purposes, which was an important aspect of growth.
1: Hmm. Um, so um, now Roy, um, when did um, your dad get into soft contact lenses?
2: Well, they we got in really late, you know, of course, by the time Victor Lee came out in the seventies, um, the, um, my dad always had this philosophy that hard lenses, rigid lenses, were were more super, were superior to soft lenses because of his own particular problem. He knew that soft lenses really would not be good for trying to um, shape the eye for a person with keratoconus, for example.
3: Mm-hmm. And you,
2: you probably couldn't do uh, orthokeratology with soft lenses, although that's argued today. But um, he was a very strong proponent because that's where he came from. So he was kind of against soft lenses. It was not in his normal way of thinking. And I would say that probably his the way he was thinking delayed the um, ability of the company to catch up or to be part of that soft lens revolution, which mm-hmm. they did finally join later. Uh, but then he had professional management in place. Um, he was the chairman of the board. and But the person, Oren Stein, who was running the company at the time, saw the advantages of developing and promoting soft lenses. And so he was more responsible for the DuraSoft component that WJ finally went into. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so the people that worked in the soft lens department were always, you know, just like everybody else, looking for those solutions of permeability, of uh, oxygen transport, water transport, um, using all of the equations and techniques that you could think of, different lens materials, uh, to increase either one of those two factors.
3: Um, uh-huh.
2: The one lasting part that they did develop were in Durasoft were the colors, obviously. Right. Um, right. And then cosmetic lenses. And in fact, that in terms of Alcon, which is now the current owner of the Wesley Jessen brand and trademark, um, still makes the Durasoft line in terms of colors and <clears throat> cosmetic lenses.
0: Yep. You know, so if, if I could ask, when you just mentioned <laughs> the, the material stuff, that uh, if I remember my history correct, they were even working with um, chemicals and materials like styrene and, (laughs) and, uh, you know, other plastics. I know the styrene I think was uh, in an attempt to get a higher index of refraction, you know, with the possibility Mm -hmm. of maybe putting that together with PMMA for a multifocal lens of design of some sort.
2: Yes, yes, that's right. Um that was not very successful, but <laughs> No. <laughs> um yeah, I think they've tried um every combination you could think of at that time given the materials that we knew of. Um, chemically things have changed a lot these days. Um from from back in the 70s and 80s sure. um you know, because there were ideas of what you could put into plastic that have changed well you know think about innovation i mean when leslie jessen put in um the uh, uh a-, a septoplast when they began putting mm. chlorhexidine oh, yeah. into the lenses you know and this was really very early to try to as a germicidal agent to yeah. combat infections in the eyes um that would not pass today no, and oh. it was very difficult actually getting it through FDA at that time.
0: And but we sure remember the brand name brands. of of Septoplast as a brand. Yeah, it's <laughs> a brand. Uh, and I and <laughs> I I have to I have to be honest. I never really knew what the heck was in it.
2: Uh, uh, Chlorhexidine.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
2: But <laughs> yeah, it would never pass today. But. Um, uh, you know they they did these leaching out studies and claimed that it did not, but you know I suspect that that it does leach out probably to some degree um, mm-hmm. but in terms of uh, i mean in in some ways, how else could it be effective in uh, showing the bactericidal effect of a lens yeah. if you didn't have some of that uh, coming out to to uh, protect the tears yeah. But do tears really need that, given the lysisine they have?
0: Right, that's you know, right. it. So, Roy, if if I could ask, uh, in talking about the training and stuff, some of the stories that I had heard, you know, through the years, was that your dad and George, either individually or together, would fly from city to city, also on them their own plane. Is that is that yeah. true?
2: Yes, well, Dad is the one who decided in the 60s that he needed to get to smaller communities, you know, because obviously, I mean, historically, optometrists of voice worked best in communities of 25,000 or less, mm-hmm. and that's the way they were distributed across the country. So in order for him to reach those doctors uh, where commercial airlines did not fly, he decided that he needed to get his own... Th- plane and fly into these smaller communities because uh, he was a very busy guy Uh, he knew that (laughs) if he flew in it would be so much easier than trying to take a bus or a train or whatever mechanism or even driving into these areas so he spent a great deal of time first learning how to fly here at a small airport what was called Ravenswood Airport which no longer exists And his first plane was a Navion. It was a little, uh, I think, uh, well, it was a cute little single-engine plane. Um, And then he he kept upgrading the planes as his distance and his time requirements got tighter and tighter, uh, until he got to a twin-beach plane, which was a plane at that time uh, that required a a full two people to fly. And so he hired a pilot um, to to be the main pilot and then he would be the co-pilot and they would fly together um to these different spots um I was able to go up with him in that sometimes and I took control while we were flying up in the air which was kind of fun
3: yeah um, no kidding
2: but yeah and he's had a lot of scary adventures flying <laughs> in storms for example and uh yeah it's like but um Yeah, some of that's in my book about him. It's like uh, an interesting period of time for him and for the family as well.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, to me, that is so fascinating, you know, that, uh, and not only the contact lenses and the working on the development and the research and then trying to train people, but then you throw in there at the same time, you know, what the heck, I think I'll learn to fly. It's yeah, really, it's I, amazing.
2: he was always doing whatever was necessary to fulfill the need that he saw at the time. Uh, there was always a solution to the problem at hand, you know, trying to get to these smaller communities to train doctors right. and uh, set up public relations and um, uh, do his radio and TV interviews. And to also Well, and it was also not only training doctors, but training the public. So those yep. two elements went together in the 50s and 60s, particularly because what good was it to train doctors if, you, if the public didn't know anything about them? Um, mm-hmm. And so a part of Nerves' function was also not just giving continuum education, but sending out uh, educational materials to the public and and having uh, materials available in doctor's offices where they could learn about contact lenses and uh and doing uh, public relations so that he was on, for example, the Dave Garroway Show or um, the the Today Show um, and doing national TV appearances. And one of the ways that they did that was with Leo the rabbit, who was this rabbit that was their experimental uh, contact lens wearer. Uh, And I think Leo had one eye that was blue and one eye that was pink because they used the colored lenses. Um, and he would use that as their way to get into T V programs.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. And so at this point what, was um, wg a national company at this point? Or was it yes, a, uh, um, or Midwest?
2: No, it was national. Um yeah, their their sales were from coast to coast. Um they ended up having something like um I think it's around 27 national offices uh, into the 60s. So
0: these would be um, like like branches, branch offices?
2: These are branch offices where um, they would do both sales and distribution from these offices. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some cases they had um, quick modification laboratories set up. They had uh, in-office training for doctors in the area. They had problem-solving clinics most of the offices were staffed by uh, one optometrist. uh, And quite often there was a sales force that went into every office. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that concept nationally grew out internationally because there were 12 countries internationally where Wesley Justin had offices as well. So,
0: (laughs) So, so as the story goes along then, um, The company gets bigger and bigger and soft lenses come along and there's DuraSoft. And then at at what point was it that the company, you know, was, you know, at the stage of their life cycle that it made sense to be part of a bigger company?
3: Yeah,
2: well, Wesley Justin then was uh, here. We're talking about the late 70s and into the beginning of the 80s. Sales had come down, and of course, the the majority of sales of contact lenses in the country at that point had gone to soft lenses, so we were not market leaders any longer. And um, in order to bridge that hump, to try to get back into uh, proper market share, the board of directors at the time saw that they needed to probably sell the company. Uh, to a larger pharmaceutical company, which is the way that all of the companies were going. Right. And we were the last of the independent manufacturers. They had been approached by, in the past, consistently by Bosch and Lone, by American Optical, uh, and a number of other companies to be bought. And Dad always refused. Um, I think he, I don't think he knew what he would do with himself if he sold the company. Uh, But he said that the reason he sold the company was when on his second marriage uh, to Sandra, that when uh, they ended up having five children, but when uh, the third and the fourth children came, they were a set of twins. And he said when the twins were born, that was the final point where he felt that he had to sell the company. Uh, That doesn't make any sense to me. And I've asked him about that. Because that's what he always said when they, when people asked him, well, why did you sell the company? And he would always say, it's because the twins were born. Well, does that make any sense to you?
3: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I don't understand it to this day. But somehow it made sense to him. And I guess that's that's the important part. That, yeah. Uh, it made sense to him. And he felt that that was. And maybe it's on top of everything else. Uh you know, where he he did, he got the figures, you know, that they were declining sales and market share. Um, And uh, it was just the correct time to do that. Um, And the remarkable thing about his relationship to George is, and I, this, this was just an oddity, but he and George never had a written contract or agreement in their partnership. And uh, dad always felt, well, this is a partnership, it's 50-50. And so when the company was sold, that's exactly the way he split it. Mm-hmm. It wow. was kind of a different way of being for business people. I mean, today, you know, you go through all these legal things and then yeah. if, if you didn't have a contract, well, one, one person would sue and blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there was, there's certainly uh a sense of ethics, morality, and respect in doing business that dad had. It was a family business. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew everybody in the company. It was from that time period, like many other um, entrepreneurs who came up by themselves. They were people, people. And dad was very much that. He was charismatic, he loved people. As did George. I mean, you—they—they you, they just uh, had a different kind of personality that you don't find in business today.
0: Yep. Well, it sure helps if you're trying to build something to have the personality to go along with it. Um, yeah. So, so, Rick, if if you can, um, you know, one of the other stories that at least I've heard through the years is how. Um, W.J. had done some research and development on silicone hydrogel lenses and that it was kind of like an afterthought and it never really went anywhere and it really became a much bigger thing after it was purchased um, by Seba Vision Is that story correct?
2: You know, I don't know, because I wasn't in the um, that particular area of uh, development and research. And That would be when Sam Loshak came in and took over uh, the research department. Um, Sam is dead now. Um, my brother probably would have known, but he just died in, sure. uh, last year. Um, and there's one other person I could check with, uh, Sha Shen, who was in that... Um, research area, Um, I will check
0: with them and get back to you. Right. So Pat, had you heard this before?
1: Yeah, I'd heard that before. And um, wasn't there a patent involved in that too? Well, the
0: story, the way that at least I had heard it, and we will investigate this because I think it's important to add to Roy's comments uh, also, is that as part of the sale, uh, the, the patent and the formula and everything was like the, on the theoretical top shelf of somewhere down in a lab. And as they were making the move out of uh, the Chicago area, uh, elsewhere, like down into the Georgia you know Atlanta area, uh, they stumbled upon it and that was the beginning of the silicone hydrogel high oxygen exchange lens materials.
1: Yeah, that was my understanding as well, and that's what uh, prevented and Lohm from getting into the silicone hydrogel market uh, for so long. Right. Right. So,
0: really, really, very interesting. Um, so, Roy, did, you know, as we start to wrap up here for today, do you have anything else that you would like to add about? your dad or the company or the family or Hmm. anything in general? (laughs) There's an awful lot, probably. I
2: probably have rambled too much about um, earlier things, but let's see. Um, Well, you know, we haven't talked about orthokeratology, for example, uh, and myopia control, but um, one of the, Interesting things. I mean, Dad has never been given much credit. I think George jessen gets a lot more credit for orthokeractology than dad. But it was actually dad who created the, the term orthocaretology as it was written up in Contacto. Um as as the person who actually founded the word, because George's uh, word of preference was orthofocus.
0: Orthofocus, correct.
2: Right. Uh and, you know, what, the, the debate over the name, uh, it's probably incidental to the real significant factor that George really created, which was the leading, the formulas leading on to um, the, the current theory of fitting in orthokeratology. Um, but, you know, it, just in terms of nomenclature, um, it's usually ignored. That it was newton who actually coined the term orthokeratology
3: which Uh
2: i think is a bad term but (laughs) right i mean it's too hard for the public to understand in terms of a concept
0: so today you know by definition it would mean the study of neutralizing the cornea mm, mm
2: -hmm. yes uh, but that's a hard concept to convey to people in general. Um, yep. uh, and I like the word myopia control, words myopia control, uh, which we're using currently, uh, because mm-hmm. that's a little closer to home for, for most people.
0: Okay. Uh, Pat, you know, do you have any other questions that uh, we can ask Roy today?
1: No, I. Other than the fact that uh, we're, this is probably going to be part one uh, of uh, a series. It's uh, there's such a story to tell that um, uh, it's just hard to get it into one hour.
0: Yeah. I, I totally <laughs> well, agree. Thank you. That's interesting. <laughs> I, to- I totally agree, and um, you know, I think that ultimately. That, Roy, we may come up with even more questions we want to ask you in the future, you know, v- related to this. Um, you know, that I'll just give you a quick history that I can't remember if I shared with you or not. But one of my early jobs in the eye care field was working at a, a chain, uh, optical chain in downtown Minneapolis. And there was a, an optometrist there, a guy named Mike Walsh who um, had a com- so-called computer set up. It was more like a telegraph machine. And he was uh, taking um, corneal images with Placido disk uh, and formulating them on this teletype machine and punching the button and sending the order to downtown Chicago at WJ headquarters. Huh. And I thought, what year wow. was this? This would have been in the uh, early seventies.
2: Okay. And yeah. So yeah. yeah, that time period when uh, Pek PK was being developed.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so it was really, you know, archaic and and this, by the way, was at a, at a retail chain. This was not, you know, the kind of place where you would think that work would be done. In fact, it was the kind of place where, you know, instead the glasses were like $29 or something. And, you know, but the this Mike Walsh guy, you know, really was keen on contact lenses. And looking back on it, he was very good at it mm-hmm. uh, at mm-hmm. the time. And, of course, they were all PMMA and a septoplast. And uh, so I think it's interesting how full circle all of that comes in now here today. I'm chatting with a Wesley regarding it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, you know that's an interesting period of time when with with Reynolds and um, what he was doing and the, the, the competition for trying to map the cornea as best as possible in those days. Yeah. yes yeah. uh, nowadays you, you can't compare current techniques to back then. It's it's like looking at a horse and buggy compared to uh, a Ferrari. But
0: <laughs> yeah, well, especially when things you know were you know, trying to visualize the rings and then a Polaroid photograph and trying to make sense mm. out of it. And today it's so doggone sophisticated. Um, well, Roy Wesley, thank you so much for your time today. And I think thank as you. Pat Caroline mentioned that this is not the last time we are going to chat together for the museum, but it's only sure. the first time.
2: Yep. Great. And, thank you very much. appreciate
0: and it. And we, we really, really thank you for your time. And look forward to uh, getting together with you again. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Roy.
1: Thanks, Greg.
0: Thanks a lot.